Welcome to this week's Into the Wilderness podcast. I am one of your hosts, Byron Pace. It is the 22nd of January, 2020. I'm recording this intro incredibly early in the morning uh, because I'm still recovering from jet lag after quite a few weeks in the States. But I'm back in Scotland, have been for less than uh, 24 hours. And today I drive over the border into England, so I'm not home for very long. This podcast I recorded while I was out in the States. It is with Maya Van Rossum. She's an environmental activist and attorney. She happens to be the longest serving Riverkeeper in the nation on the Delaware River, and I'm going to, we're going to expand on that, explain what that is throughout the podcast. Uh, she brought forward the Green Amendment movement, which we also talk about, and is an adjunct professor at the Temple Beasley School of Law. She has a book out, which is available on Amazon, called The Green Amendment, Securing Our Right to a Healthy Future. It's a fascinating conversation that starts with her upbringing in a very environmentally conscious family and goes all the way to uh, fracking and the, the implications on the environment to fracking and everything in between, including a good chunk of time spent on the conservation of river systems and the need for clean water. Uh, But before we get into the show, I've got a couple of things to take care of. The first is to give a shout out to our top tier patrons who include this week Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of rdcontracting.co.uk, Chris Griffith, John Henry Pete, Tom Craith, the guys at South Ash Stalking, James Benjamin Normandale, and last but not least, James Marchington. If you would like to support the show to help us bringing these conversations with people around the world to everybody on a, a free and open platform, then head over to Patreon. Look up the Pace Brothers into the wilderness and your support is massively appreciated at whatever level you feel that you can support us. We have a new competition for this week's show, which is run in conjunction with our partners on this podcast, Modern Huntsman, and it is to win a copy of Volume 4. And we're bringing back the animal sounds. So if you haven't heard this before, it's very simple. I'm about to play you an animal sound. All you have to do is contact us via social media or on email, which is podcast at paceproductionsuk.com, and tell us what is this animal sound. And we will pick a winner at random on the show in two weeks' time. So have a listen to this. So if you know what that is, get in contact, tell us, and you'll be in with a chance of winning Volume 4, Modern Huntsman, in two weeks' time. There's a lot of great new content going out on the Modern Huntsman website, which is modernhuntsman.com, and also on Instagram, where you're getting snippets and photography from within the volumes that are out, and also some ideas of things that are going to be coming up in the future. So definitely go and check them out on Instagram. And if you haven't got your hands on a copy of Modern Huntsman yet, you've got to go and do it. Go on the Modern Huntsman website and you can order through there. Or if you're in the UK or across Europe, you can go on to pacebrothers.com and order your copy there. Just before we jump into the show, don't forget Northern Shooting Show, 8th and 9th of May, 2020. It'll be the first show that we go to of the year. I'll be involved in some of the talks and discussions in the debating tent. It's split between inside and outside. There's all the organizations who represent 
um, hunting and, and shooting in the UK are there. There's halls full of all the manufacturers within the industry that you can think of. It's a really great atmosphere, great people who organize it. It's a huge amount of fun. And uh, I can't wait. I always look forward to going. If you've never been before, get yourself down there. Help support the show, which helps support the community. It's, it's a brilliant community event. Uh, 8th and 9th of May, 2020. We will be there. Go onto their website now and order your tickets. And now, without any further delay, here is Maya Van Rossum. Maya, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I, I'm trying to work out where to start this interview because uh, what, what the original interaction that we had was that you're the longest serving river keeper in the nation, which kind of blew me away. But before we get to that, I'm going to leave that little nugget for our listeners. Can you tell me a little bit about your background to the lead up to that? Um, so my little bit about my background. Well, um, I'm an environmental attorney and a person who loves the earth and um, decided early on to dedicate her life to protecting our environment and protecting our communities and trying to find a way to give um, our natural environment a voice in our human world. Because if there isn't somebody to speak up for and advocate for our natural environment, for the trees, for the rivers, and for all the communities, human and non-human, who depend upon a healthy environment, then they don't get heard in all the places and spaces where decisions are being made. So it seemed like a, a perfect path for me to find a way to take that on. Yeah, it's very true. Those uh, A lot of those environmental issues don't have a voice unless we give them a voice. And very often those issues have been caused by us as humans. But is there anything from your sort of childhood and growing up that gave you that fascination? It's funny. People always ask me that question and it's really hard for me to answer. I mean, I, I grew up with European parents. Um, my mom was Dutch and my father was British. Um, and they were not uh, big activists or advocates. They just believed very much in um, helping to ensure that the things that happened in our world were just and right. And if they saw an injustice um, of whatever sort, inevitably, I would watch them step up, um, whether it was, you know, seeing a, a, a set of trees being cut down for um, a reason that they didn't believe in or somebody who was improperly cutting in the line right at the supermarket or treating another person unfairly out in public. Inevitably, it would be my mom or my dad who would see that injustice going on and just step up in the moment. On the other hand, that being said, they weren't planned advocates, right? They didn't go out to public meetings and they didn't become parts of rallies or go to living room meetings to try to take on some environmental or community injustice. It really was them responding sort of in the moment when they saw it happening. Um, and the other thing I think that's in, but so I, I, I grew up, right, watching people champion, championing what they thought was just and right in the moment. So I think that that was something that really had a powerful impact on me. And environmentally, my parents didn't really talk about the environment or environmental protection or environmental advocacy per se. They just did it, 
right? So in a time when people weren't routinely using cloth bags or riding their bicycle to get to work or to go to the shop in order to save on gas, um, or my parents would do it, right? You know, if, if it, when we were in, in the supermarket, we never took that plastic bag. We always had our own shopping bags. And here in the United States of America, that was largely unheard of at the time when I was growing up. If I wanted to go to a friend's house or I wanted to go to a shop or my mom needed to get just a few items from the supermarket and so didn't need the car, she would get on her bicycle and she would ride there specifically to reduce the environmental impact. I think one of the most impactful things I had was um, this was a, when I was growing up, it was a time when people would rake up their leaves, put them in big black plastic trash bags and put their leaves out for trash, um, taking up landfill space, uh, unnecessarily using plastic bags and taking this beautiful, rich natural resource that was leaves that couldn't should be composted and just throwing them away again as though they were trash. My mother would see this every fall and she would get into our VW van and she would drive around the neighborhood and collect all these big bags of leaves and bring them back to our home where she would dump them in our garden or dump them in a nearby forest so that they could turn into healthy, black, rich soil. And she would invite me to go with her to undertake this task. And I always wanted to do it because I wanted to do this activity with my mother because I it adored my mother and, and, and I respected her and enjoyed spending time with her. On the other hand, it was kind of embarrassing when you would walk up somebody's driveway and seemingly be picking up their trash, especially when they were peering out the window, wondering what you were doing. Um, but my mom would always wave and say hello and explain what she was up to and why she was doing it and that she thought that these leaves were a natural resource. And so over time, I stopped being embarrassed and I really took it on as a sense of pride and joy to be able to through this simple act, rescue the this natural resource that was leaves and help turn it into rich black soil. At the same time, save our landfills from having the space wasted and also making sure that these black um, plastic bags weren't just used once and thrown away. We would actually bring them back to our house. And my mom found any number of uses for those those black plastic um, trash bags. So, you know, I, that's the way I grew up. You you did what was right in the moment. You live lightly on the earth and you found every way you could to um, give back to the community, give back to nature and not unnecessarily inflict environmental harm. It sounds very simple, that, you know, these couple of examples that you've given, but that's very environmentally and socially aware. What, what period of time are we talking here? So I was born in 1965, right? So we were talking about the 60s, 70s um, when I was young and doing these things with, with, with my mom. That's, uh, I mean, that's incredible. A lot of that doesn't even go on now. <laughs> I mean, this is not, not just slightly ahead of it. its time in terms of awareness and, and how to live in a more sympathetic way with the environment. You know, this is decades ahead. I mean, we're only see, we've only seen in, in the UK where I live, uh, like plastic bags, 
being banned uh, for sale, well, for putting your shopping in within supermarkets in the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, it, that's what's so interesting is to sort of have to be right now watching this transformation of people really um, understanding, not all people, many people, a growing number of people understanding how that simple act of using a cloth bag rather than a plastic bag can have such an impact on the environment because it's not just about the waste that's being created, right? It's also about all of the the fossil fuels that are being extracted in devastating yeah. ways in order to get the elements necessary to create that plastic Yeah, people, bag. people forget that. It's it's not just about discarding these items. It's the the energy and resources used to create them in the first place. That's right. It's the whole it's the whole life cycle, cradle to grave, right? As they say. And so it is quite interesting for me to to really reflect and know that I I grew up in this very forward thinking way. But for me at the time, it was just the way we lived life. I, I guess I was the odd odd man out at school, right? <laughs> the one that did everything a little bit differently, either by my own choice or by the choice of, of my parents. So I guess I did realize it was different at the time. But now, just as you said, if I reflect back on my life, I can see really truly how, how um, forward thinking my mom and dad were when it came to the environment, environmental protection, and just social justice in general. Was there, have you ever asked them if there was a, a sort of a breakover point for them? Because when you're living in a society that isn't aware of that uh, and aware of these things, it's very easy just to you know slip into the groove of what everyone else and you know what the rest of the state or the country or actually the world is doing. Was there a breakover point for them that made them or made them feel that this was important to them? Because it's, it's not... You know, it seems like small things, but it's still a lot of effort you know, to take a lot of time out your day to do the example that you gave us of going to other people's houses and picking up bags full of leaves. You know, that's time that you could have used doing something else. Uh, there must have been a real driver for them. Was there anything in particular? Do you know? Um, so sadly, I've, I've lost both of my parents a number of years ago, so I, I can't actually um, ask them. But I can reflect back. I don't. I don't think there was a breaking point. I think this is who they were in their in their heart, in their in their souls. Um, this was part of the core of who they were. I do um, reflect, though. I, re I remember a story. I remember learning when I was a late teenager, right? Maybe eighteen, nineteen, twenty, and I went to the circus with my boyfriend and there was somebody outside and they were handing out pamphlets talking about the animal abuse that took place at circuses. And I, I read the information and then I re researched, um, researched it after the fact. And, and I remember just being devastated that here I had gone to this circus in this lighthearted way. And it hadn't occurred to me how badly the animals were being abused and mistreated and how wrong this was. And I remember telling my mom and, and sharing this with my mom and sort of how horrified I was at my own behavior. And my mom said very simply to me, like, oh, yes, Yes, um, as a child, we were never um, uh, we were never allowed, or we never let you go to the circus, um, and we were never allowed to go to the circus because of the animal abuse. My parents felt very strongly about it, and I know her her father had died when she was young, so I don't know the full story. I just remember being quite stunned by the fact that that 
the um, the wrongness of a circus and how the animals were treated at the circus was something she grew up with, but she had never verbalized to me. She just never took me or my siblings to the circus because it was wrong. Um, and so that was just a little bit of an interesting insight into the fact that she was raised in a very socially, environmentally conscious way. And it was, again, just part of who she was, so much so that she didn't even think to talk about it in a very open, overt way, the way I actually do with my own children. Amazing. Yeah. And I bet you never went to another circus again. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah. I'm very, I'm very vocal. Um, and in fact, my children, you know, my children were never allowed to go to the circus, but they knew why. Because um, we were very vocal with them about it. Because I wanted them um, to have the benefit of understanding why we were making that that decision. Because I, because I really wish my mom had done that for me. I wish that I had known. Yeah, it's something that I could never bring have uh, bring myself to do growing up, and my my parents in a kind of very similar manner, but they did explain it. Uh, but now, interestingly, you, might, you may or may not be aware, but they they passed legislation, I think, about two years ago, uh, banning all um, animals in circuses uh, in yeah. the UK. It, and it, it is. It's so gratifying to see that there are places in the world where it's being banned, but also how economically, right, that even the circuses themselves are seeing it as not really cost beneficial. Um, yeah. And it's amazing when you go to a, to a human circus, right, um, how beautiful and wonderful it is and the amazing things that people can do. You don't need to, to be abusing animals in order to put on a great show. No, you definitely don't. I think uh, we're well past that now. What was the first uh, sort of big cause that you found yourself getting behind? I'm guessing this probably came at quite a young age, given uh, the sort of background that you've given us already. I, um, you know, it's, it's fun. <laughs> I'm one of those people, I sort of take on my battles. And then when it's done, I, I'm on to the next thing. So I don't have a lot of memory, I guess the, 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 I mean, if you really want to go back, I, one of the things other than the leaf collection, which really was very much a, a part of my growth and my evolution, again, going from um, simply helping my mom to becoming a young teenager and being embarrassed by it and then really em embracing it. That was very impactful. But I do also remember very early on um, learning about uh, how um, I think it was the Carnation Company, actually, but it was some company was uh, providing free of charge formula for children in third world countries. And that this was seemingly from a marketing perspective being done as a way to be helpful and supportive to mothers and, and infants in these third world countries. But then what, what became clear was that it was actually a, a potentially even an intentional marketing ploy um, and long story short, what would happen, right, is that they would provide the formula for a period of time and then the mother's milk would dry up and suddenly and the program would end. And then you would have these women unable to nurse their children um, and unable to afford the cost of the formula that they now needed to feed their children. And I remember 
hearing about that um, on uh, the public radio station um, and being encouraged once again by my mother uh, to do something about it. And I remember writing a letter to the company. I think I still have it up in my attic. Um, and I was very, I was very young. I think I, I must have been under 10 and writing a letter to the company expressing my outrage. And I remember getting a letter back um, and then explaining themselves. And long story short, at some point, because of the public outcry, they actually stopped the program. And I remember feeling how wonderful it was to, to in my mind as a child, to be part of advancing that change. And so that's also something that resonates very much in, in my mind, just how when you speak up, when you get active, when you let your voice be heard, that you can be part of driving really powerful and important change. When you started telling that story, I was uh, trying to work out, you know, how old were you? When, and I was thinking, well, maybe late teens. And then you said you were less than 10 years old. I mean, that's, that's quite an, uh, an incredible um, you know, point of interest for somebody so young. Well, that's what and I do. Well, remember, one is that's my recollection. Right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> but even, you know, give or take a couple yeah. of years. But, yeah. I mean, I think that that probably speaks to you know, the importance and impact and influence that your parents had on your concern and way of thinking of the world. Yes. And it was very much, again, I remember, I remember hearing the story and not fully understanding it. And my mom having a real conversation with me and explaining it to me. And then that sense of, of upset and loss and sadness and, and indignation at how wrong it was, you know, and feeling powerless. But then again, through more conversation with my mother, her saying to me, well, well you can speak up. Um, and I never thought anything would come of it. And again, you know, I was just one voice, obviously, of many, many in the world, which is what really drove the change. But in my young mind, you know, this was very impactful and very powerful. And again, when I got the letter back from the company saying that they were changing their behavior, again, that really, that really struck me. Um, but I think it does, it, 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 it brings home, again, part of, how I was raised, right? When you see an injustice, you get involved and how important it was that I had, you know, a mother and a father who not only were willing to act in the ways that they believed, but to include me in that and to share with me how I too could become a person, you know, active in advancing social and environmental justice, even though we didn't call it that at the time, right? At the time, it was just doing what was right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I see that. Uh, now it has a name. Now it has a name. So if we fast forward a bit, because I'm, I'm fascinated to understand this fully. Uh, I mentioned it right at the start when, when, when we begun speaking. Longest serving riverkeeper in the nation. Can you explain that to me? Because although we have a lot of listeners uh, here in the States, if I was to give that title to anybody in the UK, I have a feeling it would mean a, a slightly different thing. Yes, it does. Actually, um, the, I think the term originated, as far as my understanding of the history of the Riverkeeper movement, is the, the term actually originated in, in the United Kingdom. And it did have something to do very functional with, with waterways, not being environmental advocates um, of rivers, but there, but there was 
clearly in association with Rivers. And I don't remember the whole history, but there was a gentleman here in the United States named Bob Boyle. And he and his um, organization, the Hudson River Fishermen's Association, were very powerful advocates for the Hudson River. And at some point, Bob Boyle had the inspiration that um, of adopting this term river keeper and, and giving that title to a person. At the time, it was a gentleman named John Cronin. And John Cronin was dubbed the Hudson River Keeper. And the whole idea that Bob Boyle had was that using this name, using this terminology, giving the title to a single um, person to embody this idea, personify this idea that that every river should have a champion and every river should have a voice and every individual should take personal responsibility for the protection of their uh, local waterway, of which you know they were a part of that waterways community, that 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 waterways watershed. And so there then came to be what was known as the Hudson River Keeper on the Hudson River. And it was John Cronin and he would became was a very powerful voice for the Hudson River and worked with Bob Boyle and the Hudson River Fishermen's Association to undertake incredible advocacy on the on behalf of the Hudson River. Then here in the Delaware River watershed, where I live, the Delaware River watershed includes portions of New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. There were a group of residents who who witnessed or learned about what was happening on the Hudson and said, you know, we want to have that for our river. We want our river to have an advocate dedicated entirely to giving our river a voice and the protection it needs and deserves. Um, in you know every every room where government is rendering decisions and in every community where actions or activities were either harming or helping our beautiful Delaware River and every tributary stream that feeds it and so the Delaware Riverkeeper network was born and we created the second riverkeeper position in the country, the Delaware Riverkeeper. And then over time, other communities and other waterways became inspired by this idea of, you know, giving their waterway a voice in our human world. And slowly over time and then more quickly in later years, more and more communities created riverkeeper, baykeeper, soundkeeper, inletkeeper, waterkeeper, organizations. And now as you look across the nation, you can see other waterways with this kind of um, uh, advocate that is um, empowered, um, focused entirely on that waterways protection and restoration. But it really all began with the Hudson and then the Delaware. Um, And I am honored to, again, be the longest serving riverkeeper in the nation. You know, as these other organizations came on, one, they came on much later. But two, they also have had uh, keepers that have come and gone um, after a number of years. Well, I came and I stayed around (laughs) for a really Uh, long time. And I'm still here. How long have you been there now, Maya? Um, So I've been the Delaware Riverkeeper for... At this point, it's nearly 26 years. Um, the Amazing. organization existed a few years before I came on. Um, and there were actually a couple of different um, river keepers from the get-go. And then then I came on board and, uh, and never left. 
This is fascinating to me because I actually sit on uh, as a trustee on the Esk Rivers and Fisheries Trust back in Scotland, which is a, a catchment uh, of the two, the, the North and South Esk and all the tributaries that run in it. For a very, what, what I think from what you've said is a very sort of similar purpose. But what we don't have is like an individual a name and a voice and a champion for that. You know, I sit there as a committee and we, we work out what we can do um, to improve our systems, whether that be uh, clearing jams up tributaries so that fish can go up to spawn or removing, uh, you know, old blockages like where there used to be lades from mills. Uh, but having that sort of individual voice to, to champion a system to make people sort of vested in the best interest of it is is something actually that has come up from time to time because we often say, you know, who doesn't, who will have uh, an interest in those systems if they don't have a reason to have an interest? So very often a lot of that is fronted, well, this is true across most of the UK, a lot of the work that goes into our river systems and the funding um, and the sort of the driving force behind it comes from fishermen because they have a vested interest. They, they're, they, I mean, it's to some extent, it's a slightly selfish vested interest because they want to be able to fish the river, but it gives them um, a reason to want to make it better. It's very difficult for someone who doesn't have that reason to put time and effort and money into it. And this sounds to me like a way that you can get people enthused about doing the right thing and helping to improve a system because you've got uh, a, a single voice to champion it. Yeah, I, you have exactly the right perspective. I mean, I think that that it really is, it gives people a powerful vision of the importance of a river having a voice, as you said, of having a champion. I mean, the reality is, as you know, clearly, no waterway is going to be protected because of the work of a single individual. It absolutely takes a community. But it is important, right, that that when there's debate over how to um, advance a cause or what, how to render a decision that is going to have an impact on a river, on a stream, on a water system, um, we have to recognize that that when you have community engagement, you also have a lot of compromise. Uh, and if that river, and that, but that river, right? Each of us, as we have our own voice in the world, while um, the communities that are rendering decisions that may impact us may be open to compromise, we, when we speak on behalf of ourselves, right, want to put forth our firmest, best argument for why we and our needs should be given the highest level of protection in whatever decision is being made. Well, rivers need that kind of voice too. Rivers need that kind of champion too. And if it's always left up to community decision-making, well, inevitably at one point, the decision's always going to go to the lowest common denominator. What is the thing that we could get the most people on board with um, in order to advance whatever decision it is we're going to do, advance um, and protect the river at the same time. But you can't always go to the lowest common denominator, right? Like our, our, our rivers are important and they're powerful and they are the basis of life for so much in our human world. And so it's important that there is always somebody at the table who's not willing to go to the lowest common denominator for decision-making, but is going to be that person that says, this is the highest goal 
This is what we must achieve in order to protect this beautiful river to provide the greatest benefit to the most people as well as the the the, the most elements of our natural and human worlds, right? Which isn't just people. There's aquatic life, there's plant life, there are other things that are served and dependent, served by and dependent upon a healthy river system. And so what a river keeper does is, is make sure that that highest vision for protection and need of the river is always brought to every decision-making table and is not watered down by compromise um, when it comes to the table to be part of the conversation. Yes, compromise happens in decision-making. Yes, sometimes you will end up at a, at a lowest common denominator, but that compromise and that lowest common denominator is going to be much higher um, if you have a true, pure, voice championing the true rights, needs, and desires of the river system, right? Because it will raise, it will elevate all aspects of the conversation. So we end up at a more protective place because of that pure river focused voice. It it makes me uh, think to myself right now that this is something that we could export from the States to the UK I, I I I love what what you've been telling me about it, and I I really feel like we could benefit from that because we have, uh, as is true probably you know across the whole world, we, we suffer with the same problems that you have here, and one of the biggest issues to get people to get out of their seat and do something has been because they probably first up don't realize the issues at hand, uh, but secondly, it's very difficult for them to get behind this sort of wash of organizations that don't doesn't really have a face doesn't really have a voice but does kind of put the information out there so i i think it's uh it's a really beautiful way of doing it to have a person for for you know, a river or a system or something particular that people can relate to yeah i mean i think you you're you're right right that organizations can provide really powerful information and a really powerful vision and they can provide a level of important support um but to truly inspire people right people people are inspired by other people and so that is part of the power and benefit of this riverkeeper concept is as you said to to give that that champion that voice that different way of looking at the world and what's happening around us um, that can truly inspire others to want to come to the table, get involved, get active, and speak up for the benefit of nature, the environment, and their own selves, right? Because again, we all depend upon healthy nature. Yeah, we we very often forget that we work together in this, people and nature. There's there's a, a connectedness between our ability to look after one another in a way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And another thing that I, um, you know, that that's an outgrowth of my work as the Delaware Riverkeeper and, and my organization, the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, and sort of another way to engage and in, inspire people and for them to see the connectiveness between healthy human lives and a healthy natural world is this idea of advancing environmental rights. Um, 
a lot of people in the U.S. and across the world absolutely believe, rightfully so, that they have a right to clean water, to clean air, to a stable climate, and to healthy environments. And it is true that this is an inalienable human right. But here in the United States of America and in um, you know nations around the world, the truth is those inalienable rights to a healthy environment are only meaningful and can only be enforced and acted upon if they are protected, recognized and protected at the highest levels under the law. Here in the United States of America, that means recognizing and protecting the the environmental rights of all people, including future generations, in our state and federal constitutions, specifically in the Bill of Rights provisions of our constitutions, where all inalienable human, civil, and political rights are recognized and protected. Other nations, right, have their own way, have have national constitutions and their own way of recognizing and protecting rights of this kind. Um, We're working very hard here in the U.S. to advance this idea of green amendments, environmental rights amendments of this kind in every single state constitution across our nation and ultimately at the federal level, because here in the U.S., there are actually only two states that have a green amendment of this kind. So there are only two states in the United States of America where the the inalienable rights to pure water, clean air, a stable climate, and healthy environments are legally, constitutionally recognized and protected as a genuine, inalienable human right. Hmm. And so yeah, to that- me... Sorry, I was just going to say. No, no, please carry on. Get back to the other point, right? That where I sort of my jumping off spot um, is, you know, when when we talk about this constitutional right, like, you know, people realize that they need they need clean water and clean air to have a healthy life, and so when you start to talk to people about the fact that here in the U.S. they have a constitutional right to free speech, due process, even a constitutional right to bear arms, but they don't have that same kind of right in clean, healthy drinking water and clean, healthy air. It really strikes them because when placed in that context, people realize and recognize they need clean water in order to live a healthy life. And they are struck by the fact that they might have the right to carry a gun around town, but they do not have a right to get clean, healthy water out of the faucet in their homes. And that also drives back this idea of we are very connected to nature and what happens in nature directly affects our lives. Um, and so we, we bring people to that message in this in this slightly different way, which which I found really resonates with people as well. Yeah, I can, I can see that because it brings it to their doorstep. Whereas if you're just looking at maybe some obscure, uh, negative, um, you know, environmental impact, you know, so, something on riverbed ecology that's never well, that people don't feel like it's ever going to affect them. But the very you know, simple notion of clean water in your home, everyone can relate to that. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so it's it, 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 
it, it's just another way, as you said, to, to really emphasize that connectedness and that if people want to protect themselves, whether it's their health, their safety, the quality of their lives, their property values, their local economy, right, um, uh, recreational opportunities, educational opportunities, the right to be free from, you know, or safe from droughts and floods and wildfires. It, it lets people realize if, if to get all of these benefits, you actually have to have a natural, a healthy natural ecosystem of what, of which you are a part. Because if we are devastating our natural resources, all of these important elements of a human, of a healthy human life, can't be supported. They they don't thrive. In your twenty plus years um, as Delaware Riverkeeper, what are the big fights that you've had on the table that you've been? Well, I was going to say that you've been su- successful um, against, or you can equally tell uh, us any ones that you haven't been successful. Uh, I would. I'm guessing some of it probably has to do with big business, but maybe that's me jumping to, to conclusions. No, no, that's a good conclusion. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the biggest, biggest one truly is this this idea of the power and importance of green amendments and environmental rights, because it was actually the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, my organization, and me and my role as the Delaware Riverkeeper, that we engaged in a very significant legal action against the, uh, a very pro-fracking, pro-fossil fuel piece of legislation where we actually secured a legal decision that gave to people their constitutional right to pure water, clean air, and a healthy environment. There had been an environmental rights amendment of this kind, a green amendment passed in the Pennsylvania Constitution in 1971, but it had been very quickly undermined and declared to be just a statement of policy. And so while there there was this great environmental rights language on the books, in reality, the people of Pennsylvania did not have this constitutional right to a healthy environment. Um, Fast forward to the mid-2000s, drilling and fracking for gas from shale came to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, was devastating Pennsylvania's environments, Pennsylvania's communities, contaminating drinking water, spewing, you know, climate-changing methane emissions, resulting in the cutting of the forests, and really just the devastation of the lives that were being impacted. And we brought a legal action to challenge a piece of legislation that was about to make that fracking industry have even more capacity to devastate more communities and more environments. It gave them automatic waivers from environmental protection standards. It gave them the power of eminent domain in certain contexts. Um, It even relieved them of the uh, obligation to notify people on private drinking water wells um, of the potential that their drinking water had been contaminated by local fracking operations. So it was a horrible law. And we challenged it legally. And we used this long ignored Pennsylvania Environmental Rights Amendment to challenge these aspects of the law that were so devastating. And in response, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court issued a decision that declared these aspects of the law that we were challenging to be declared them to be unconstitutional and um, therefore defunct, 
right? And and as a result, we did a real blowback to the fracking industry, but at the same time, very literally gave to the people of Pennsylvania a constitutional right to pure water, clean air, and a healthy environment. So that was one of the most impactful victories that we that I have had in my in my role as the Delaware Riverkeeper and was the jumping off point for this new national green amendments for the generations movement that we've launched where we're trying to advance the passage of these kinds of environmental rights amendments in every state across our nation and ultimately at the federal level because there's only one other state that has a has an amendment of this kind, and that's Montana. So there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, as you heard as part of that story, many, you know, one of our, our biggest opponents in our Delaware River watershed um, is the fracking industry. There's tremendous um, fracking that is taking place in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania that threatens the Delaware River. Now, early on, we, um, I won't go into the ins and outs, but, but we have secured a layer of protection for the Delaware River. And as a result, while the fossil fuel industry, the fracking industry is proliferating in communities outside of the boundaries of the Delaware River watershed, right now there is a prohibition on any drilling or fracking for gas from shale within the boundaries of our watershed. And that is because of the leadership and work of the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, as well as our partner organizations. Um, but while we have had that big, big success when it comes to, to, to fracking, those two big successes when it comes to fracking, there are still many battles we fight against fracking infrastructure, pipelines, compressor stations, liquefied natural gas facilities that are cutting through and being plopped onto into our Delaware River watershed in order to service the fracking that is happening elsewhere. So we are battling at this point well over a, a dozen pipelines, compressors, or export facilities that are inflicting um, inflicting or threatening to inflict incredible harm on the water resources and the communities of our watershed. Just this morning, I was reading, you know, working on a press release um, uh, in response to a, a one of our legal actions having to do with a facility called the Salem Nuclear Generating Station. This is a power plant that because it uses antiquated operations, kills very literally over 14 billion fish, eggs, and larvae out of our Delaware River every year. It is wow. the largest predator in our Delaware River system. And if that facility was, was required to use modern day technology, we could reduce those fish kills by over 95%. Um, and so we have a legal action trying to force the state of New Jersey to require PSEG that owns Salem to put in place this very available technology, um, because so far New Jersey hasn't done that. We As a matter of interest, what? Sorry, yeah. I don't want to break your train of thought, but I'm just I'm I'm curious to understand how they're killing all these fish and eggs. 
Yeah. So it's always a risk to ask me about the, the, the work I do because I really believe I get, I'm sorry, I get very involved. <laughs> no, I love it. I, I just, I just wanted to press pause a minute because I didn't yeah. want to lose uh, this question. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm interested to know what, what it is in their yeah. process of generation that's having such a detrimental impact on the river system. So what most power plants these days, um, including nuclear power plants, they, they use something called one, um, uh, closed cycle cooling. And so they need, they need cool river water in order to cool their, or they need cool water in order to cool their power plant operations, right? And, and so they suck cool water from some, some body of water and then they run it through their power plant so that it can help draw off the heat right, from what's happening in the power plant. But as a result, this cooling water gets very, very hot. And so it needs an opportunity to cool down. And so what um, more forward thinking modern day facilities does, it's, I mean, this technology has been around for decades and decades since Salem was built, by the way, but they take that heated water and they put it in something called a cooling tower, right? And it takes it to a place and it puts it in a cooling tower where the water can cool down. And then once it's cooled, it can be brought back into the facility to use, um, to perform that cooling function, right? And so the same water gets recycled over and over and over. A little bit of, of it gets lost through evaporation. Um, and so just a little bit of water needs to be pulled back from a local water source in order to replenish the law, the, the water that, that gets lost through steam or evaporation, right? During that whole, um, heating cooling process. But what PSEG does at the Salem Nuclear Generating Station is rather than construct and use a cooling tower, they suck in fresh water. They use what's called once through cooling. So they suck in fresh water, they run it through their power plant operations, and then they spit it out the other end. Well, what that means is that they have to draw in um, 3 billion gallons of Delaware River water every single day. They run it through their power plant. Every day. Cool. Every day. Wow. And they run it through their power plant and then they spit it out the other end um, at, I think it's on the order of 117 degrees, right? So it's very, very hot. Well, when they're pulling that water in, there are critters, right? There are fish that live yeah. in that water. So fish, eggs, and larvae. Some of the, 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 the fish, uh, the larger fish get screened out. Um, but through that screening process, they actually, they get impinged on the screens and can get dramatically damaged. Their body can get dramatically damaged from the force of the water pressing them against the screen, or they might suffocate. Slowly over time, these screens sort of rotate up and then the fish, you know, get backwashed off the screen and they get dumped back in the river. But many of them get dumped back dead or in such a devastated state that they die later. The smaller fish, the eggs, the larvae, they get pulled into the power plant. And through the high heat or going through um, smaller and smaller and smaller tubing over time as they get further and further into the bowels of the, of, of the power plant, these fish literally get ripped apart or cooked. Um, 
if they manage to sur- the fish eggs or the larva, if they manage to survive all of that and make it through the whole process, well, then they get spit back out into the river on the other end. But they are now in this, you know, 117 degree or so water. So they're cooked. Yeah. And, but when they get spit back, well, but if they've survived, when they get spit back into the river water, the river water is very cold in comparison. Mm. So they die from cold shock. Okay. It's horrible. It's horrible. And it, it, it occurs to me through the, these two examples, both both the fracking and then this uh, this power station, the, what it really comes down. I mean, we need we need power. We we know that right now we don't have uh, the ability across the planet to generate all of our power, uh, be that cars or electricity in our houses with renewable resources. We're not there yet, so we need to be able to provide power. And we know that fracking is going to go on, but it's about doing it in the most appropriate way with the technology that we have at the moment. And that seems to be the direction that you've taken because legislation and the rules and regulations have allowed people to uh, operate in a way that is negatively affecting the environment on a very large scale. Yeah. So I'm, I'm actually going to disagree with you uh, a little bit. So, okay. um, you know, I, I believe that absolutely, if we were to invest in the clean energy options today, the wind, the solar, the other emerging technologies, um, I've seen report after report, analysis after analysis that shows exactly how we could be entirely supported by clean energy options within the next, um, you know, 10, 20 years. Uh, but I just meant like at this oh, very God. moment in time that exists. And so we need to, with with those systems that exist right now, we need to make sure that they operate in a way that isn't massively negative, uh, you know, massively affecting us in a negative way. Yeah. So I, I yeah, I, I hear what you're, I hear what you're saying. Um, the thing is, the, the, the problem is, like when it comes to fracking, there is no way to frack safely. Right. So we believe absolutely we need to be shutting down all of these fracking operations right now and be, um, you know, putting in place the, the, the clean energy technologies right now because fracking is devastating lives. I mean, it's very literally killing people and we actually don't need the fracked gas in order to continue to provide the energy we need today. The energy industry wants it, and they spend a lot of time on marketing on how we do need it. But the truth is, we could be really shutting down these operations right now. We certainly shouldn't be expanding them um, because for for many in the you know many fossil fuel industries, there's just no way to do it safe. And I just don't think it's worth the sacrifice of the you know the children who are dying in the cancer clusters and the communities that are drinking poison water and of course the devastations of climate change. And I know you're with me on this. I hear I can hear you right now, but I'm with you, Maya. I know you're totally with me on this. Um, I think my only point is that I, I I really believe that you'd like to see it done quicker. Right. And I think it can be and it and it and it should be. And it's only the politicians and the the fossil fuel industry that spend an awful lot of time investing in um, marketing and lobbying that that, you know, really put forth the alternative 
argument. I mean, when you look at Salem, very literally, when the Salem Nuclear Generating Station was built, closed cycle cooling was available. They could have built it in the way to avoid all of these fish kills. They chose not to. When it comes to energy creation, like here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, where all of this fracking is is happening, um, energy could be created in another way. We don't need the fracked gas or the fracking fossil fuel en um, energy. It's just the industry and the legislators that are in their pockets that um, are deeming otherwise. And so are, you know, inflicting the devastations on fracking, uh, of fracking on, on all of us. I know we don't have a, a lot of time left before you're going to have to go. And I want to point people in the direction of your book but just if you can i don't think this is actually possible but it's of particular interest to people back in the uk because we just i think this year put a moratorium on all fracking so that there's no fracking there was very minimal amount on land anyway most of it was happening in the north sea uh, but right now they've put a ban on it just to explain to uh, particularly people at home, it's much more of a topic here in the States as to the issues around it, if you can, in, in, in a few minutes, the sort of the headline issues with it. So fracking requires massive volumes of water to frack a, a, a given well um, in order to extract the gas. You need anywhere from 10 to 20 million gallons of water, right? Now, the fracking industry right now um, has, uh, I think, on the order of 10,000 wells in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. They want to frack as much as as many as 100,000 wells, you know, take the, take, take that number and multiply, multiply it by 10 to 20 million gallons of water. And you can see the massive volumes of water that are required, um, to, to advance fracking to that water. The fracking industry adds, um, hundreds of very dangerous chemicals. Many of them, they don't disclose the dangers to the community. They don't even disclose what those chemicals are. But many of those chemicals are highly toxic, are cancer causing, and are very dangerous. So this, all of that massive volume of, of water is now contaminated with these chemicals. That chemical contaminated water gets shot into the geology of the earth in order to fracture the shale where the gas is trapped. As that water circulates through the shale, it pulls from the geology of the earth other toxic contaminants, including um, naturally occurring radioactive materials. Um, and so now that that toxic water becomes even more highly toxified um, as it's traveled through the geology of the earth. Two bad things now happen to that water. Um, uh, on the order of 80, you know, 70, 80, 85% of that water actually remains in the geology of the earth. So all of those massive volumes of fresh water um, taken from the surface of the earth at best is now lost into the geology of the earth, never to be seen again. We hope because it is now so highly toxic, we all learn as children, there's only a limited supply of fresh water on the surface of the earth. You can imagine how quickly we now lose that water if we allow fracking to proliferate the way the industry wants to. But there is that, there is that 
20, 10, 20% that comes back to the surface of the earth. This now, this, this water is highly contaminated. It's so contaminated that even the industry doesn't have a good solution for what to do with it. So what they actually do um, in many instances is they send it to other communities, other states where they inject it back into the earth um, in deep down caverns in the hopes that they've sort of locked it away from the surface of the earth. So we've now, um, during the, the transport, during all of this, it is not uncommon, right, that this highly contaminated water can get back into the environment in a variety of ways, um, intentionally, accidentally. Um, where the this, this, this contaminated water is injected into the earth, it's creating earthquakes, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of earthquakes. A state like Oklahoma that never had any earthquakes now has as many as 600 earthquakes a year. These are earthquakes that can be felt on the surface of the earth. Um, the, the, but the contaminated water, as it's getting injected into the ground, as it circulates under the ground, when it comes back up to the surface through a variety of pathways, it gets into the environment. It gets into the soil. It gets into the groundwater. Even people's drinking waters, uh, drinking water supplies get contaminated with, as a result of, of the fracking industry. Each of the well pads requires acres of land, three to five acres of land. Often these well pads are placed in forests and natural landscapes. So we've now trans, we transform our natural landscapes into, um, these highly industrial well pads. These well pads are often placed quite close together. These well pads require thousands of truck trips to bring in materials to take out contaminated frack water to undertake the fracking process. Each of these thousands of trucks are driving on little local roads through local communities. Um, and they're all fueled by dirty fossil fuels, right? They're, so they're spewing the contamination from the trucks, of course, um, into the air. Fracking um, the whole operation, but the fracked gas itself is a climate changing fossil fuel. It's primarily methane. Methane yeah. in the near term, when you look at the 20, 10 to 20 year time frame, the time frame over which we are either going to avert the most devastating aspects of climate change or not, methane is your, uh, amongst your most devastating climate changing emissions. What um, NASA and scientists are proving is that the proliferation of fracking is resulting in tremendous volumes of methane being released into the atmosphere so that we are exacerbating climate change and climate changing emissions, right? We're making that problem worse. We are not making things better by fracking when it comes to climate change. We are making things worse. People who are forced to live next to these fracked, highly industrial well pads, right, where the fracking and the trucks and all that activity is happening, they are getting sick. Their drinking water is contaminated. You know, there are people who want to go sit outside and enjoy a cup of coffee in their backyard. They can't because they have to live nearby this highly polluting, very loud, 24-7, noise, light, and pollution industrial site, you know, near their home. Um, if they want to move because they want to go to safer ground, well, nobody the wants to buy their home. The house isn't worth as much anymore. That's right. Yeah. So they yeah. can't yeah. move, right? So 
all the way around every aspect of people's lives, their water, their air, their natural surroundings, their, 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 their peace and enjoyment, the quality of their lives, their property values. I mean, the safety driving on their, on their own local roads, all of that, right, is being harmed by the fracking industry. And then that's getting magnified by this, this spiraling web of pipelines that is now be cutting through communities, through wetlands, through rivers, through streams, carrying this highly explosive gas from one part of the country to another, often so it can be exported to other foreign nations for use. It's not even used in the country where all this devastation is happening, right? And th- these pipelines, and the compressor stations, which are another polluting source, they bring their own set of permanent and devastating harms to communities, to environments, to climate change, to property value. So there's the, more the, the, spider, the spider web spreads far <laughs> and wide. And because it's not, I think, a lot, what a lot of people maybe don't realize if they have limited knowledge of the sort of fossil fuel industry is that with regard to fracking the 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 observed footprint above ground is f- far more obvious than with traditional reservoirs just because of the nature of like yeah. the mechanics of how those reservoirs work uh, which is why you were saying you know the 100,000 wells or, or the number that you gave that seems like an incredible number but it's because it's a very limited output that you get from these um, fairly short horizontal wells they're only really taking fuel from a, a fairly small area around the hole that they drill um i i feel like we could well i, I don't I, I know for a fact that we could carry on talking about this for possibly the rest of the day <laughs> but i know that you have to go so just before we wrap up um two things i wanted to ask you one was if people want to read a little bit more about the work that you've been doing you have a book the green amendments curing our right to a healthy environment um just what is the what is the synopsis of that and where can people find it so um thank you for that so the 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 book is really um initially through the stories that i tell proving the point that our current system of environmental protection laws is failing us right and that it's resulting in um contaminated environments right contaminated air water the devastation of our climate because the way our laws are written and implemented they accept pollution and environmental degradation as a foregone conclusion and they focus mainly on how do we manage it by issuing permits not how do we prevent the harm in the first instance. Um, And then from that, talks about a new path for stronger environmental protection, at least here in the United States of America. And that is, as I mentioned earlier, through the passage of what I call green amendments, right? Bill of Rights, constitutional environmental rights amendments that recognize and protect the rights of all people, including future generations, to pure water, clean air, a stable climate, and healthy environments. We do have a website, um, www.forthegenerations.org. Um, and so people can involve, can learn about and get involved in the Green Amendment movement there. Um, and if they want to learn more about my Delaware Riverkeeper work, uh, www.delawareriverkeeper.org. You know, we've been doing this work for decades and decades, fighting against inappropriate development and dams 
and pollution discharges and energy development and also advancing good things like clean energy, right? Protecting species of all kinds and helping to protect our human communities that depend upon a healthy natural world. So um, if you're interested in learning more about that work, DelawareRiverkeeper.org is the place to learn about that. Fantastic. And I, I, it, it occurred to me that there are probably people listening to the fracking discussion there who might be intrigued to learn more. Is there a good place where there's independent science that people can read about? So first off, there's a whole chapter in the book, The Green Amendment, oh, about fracking. And it's all footnoted. The entire book um, is is heavily footnoted so that it can take people to additional resources Perfect. On the Delaware Riverkeeper Network website, we have a page that several pages actually dedicated to our fracking work. And we have a lot of fact sheets and we, we believe very much in good science, good facts and good information. So all of our fact sheets at DelawareRiverkeeper.org are heavily footnoted and will take people to other resources where they can learn more about um, the science behind what is going on and the proof of the harms of fracking, but also look at how um, it's impacting impacting lives. It will take people to, for example, I can't remember the long name, but there's this amazing compendium that includes every single peer-reviewed piece of science on fracking, um, plus, minus, or otherwise, and actually proves the point that the only pro fracking science that comes out really comes out from the industry and is a um, is vastly overwhelmed by the peer review science that proves proves that drilling and fracking for gas from shale is devastating people's lives, contaminating drinking water, natural water, contaminating the air, and of course, contributing to climate instability. And so there are amazing resources out in the world that for, for, for people to learn more from. And if they go to the Delaware Riverkeeper fact sheets or go to the chapter in the Green Amendment, they will find pathways to all of those kinds of resources. That's fantastic. I'll, I'll dig those links and put them in the, the footnotes to this podcast. Uh, Maya, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. If you're ever over in the United Kingdom, I'd love you to be able to speak to some of the, the, the biologists and directors of the fishery trusts at home, because I think we could probably learn a lot about getting people enthused about their, their river systems at home from what you've done uh, over here in the States. So yeah, open invitation if you're ever across. Well, I'd love to introduce so you to those people. You. If you're serious about that, I would I be am. happy to plan a trip. I'm sure that my family would love a holiday. <laughs> like I said, my father was British. When I was 12, we lived for a year in England. I have family in England. Um, and so I am sure that we could happily plan a family vacation around any sort of certain time of year so that I could pop over and do that kind of meeting because – I, you know, I first, I think, you know, keeping in place the protections that you've secured over there is, is hugely, hugely important. And as you said, that comes from education. And when people are wondering, you know, why wouldn't we want this, this natural gas? We always hear it's a, it's a good thing. Why wouldn't we want it? I think it is powerful for people to hear firsthand real world about how lives are being devastated here in the U.S. And so I'd be happy again to plan a trip to help to help share that information and message and would bring all kinds of resources with me. Fantastic. Maya, thank you so much for your time and I look forward to speaking to you again. Great. Thank you. 
Thank you very much for listening in. We will be back in two weeks' time. Don't forget to enter the Guess the Sound competition for your chance to win a copy of Modern Huntsman Volume 4. And we would really love it if you have a moment. Go and leave us a review for the podcast on whatever platform you listen to this podcast on. Have a great next two weeks. You'll be hearing from us soon. 